Hello, my name is Sam Williamson. I'm the multimedia producer for EKU Online and the Instructional Design Center at EKU. We have the privilege of working with some amazing faculty members, and today our guest is no exception. Today I'm talking with Dr. Judah Schept, an associate professor in the School of Justice Studies at EKU. Dr. Schept holds a PhD in criminal justice from Indiana University and a BA in sociology from Vassar College. His work examines the political economy, historical geography, and cultural politics of the prison industrial complex. He's also the author of Progressive Punishment, Job Loss, Jail Growth, and the Neoliberal Logic of Carceral Expansion, published by New York University Press in 2015. Dr. Shep's current research examines the historical, spatial, and political relationships between extractive and prison economies in central Appalachia. And on a personal note, Judah lives down the street from me. He's my neighbor, and I can attest to him being an awesome human being. So without further ado, Dr. Shep, welcome. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me. I can attest to the same about you, <laughs> neighbor. So if we could just start maybe with you telling us a bit about your interest in criminal justice, how you came to that interest, and then maybe how you came also to teach at EKU. Yeah, sure. Thanks again for having me on. I'm happy to be here. I sort of chart the beginning of my interest with a particular experience I had while an undergraduate actually in New York. This would be probably in 1999. I was studying sociology, uh, didn't have a particular focus, had thought I might move on into teaching younger children. And on the suggestion of a friend, uh, I decided to participate or sign up for a full credit sort of internship field experience in a men's maximum security prison uh, in upstate New York, about 30 or 40 minutes from campus. That involved going in weekly and participating in sort of discussion and study groups that were facilitated by uh, the people who were incarcerated themselves. And it was life-changing. I mean, it was this pivotal moment for me, um, quite literally from the very first time I went in. And I did that you know, that whole first semester of my junior year of college and continued with it for the next three subsequent semesters. It reshaped what I was studying. It certainly reshaped my kind of larger ideas about the world, led to some internships, some work experiences after college, working with primarily young people who were incarcerated. Uh, that was in New York City. And then working with some young people who were sort of quote unquote at risk in San Francisco and ultimately back for, for a PhD to be able to sort of study these issues in, in greater detail. And as I was finishing my PhD in 2011, there were, you know, a sort of a few opportunities that I, that I had for, uh, for a professorship. And one had opened at, at EKU in justice studies, what was then called the Department of Criminal Justice. And as it happened, uh, during that time when I was in college, and had begun to study these issues following these experiences at, at the men's prison, I had also started you know, taking these classes and, and reading some material about criminal justice, including a book written by two uh, EKU professors, uh, Dr. Vic Kapler and Dr. Gary Potter, and that book was, was particularly influential. And so when the opportunity arose to actually come and, and work at EKU, I was sort of a no-brainer. Awesome. Well, we're lucky to have you. Glad you chose EKU. <laughs> Me too. Um, so 
just just the way we're set up right now, normally we'd have you in the studio and we'd be talking about this, but uh, uh, undoubtedly we're living in a crazy world right now. And the more we peel back the layers here, all of these things seem connected. So would you mind just starting uh, by painting us kind of a broad picture of mass incarceration? Yes, absolutely. So your listeners and viewers may be familiar with this to greater or lesser extents. The term mass incarceration has gotten to be sort of increasingly common um, amongst, you know, um, certainly amongst politicians and amongst kind of, you know, commentators and media and whatnot. Mass incarceration generally refers to the rise and scale and scope of the system in which we, or by which we incarcerate people in the United States. A scale and size and scope that is the largest in, in the world. Uh, we incarcerate about 2.3 million people in prisons and jails. It is at a rate of something like 750 per 100,000 Americans. That can sound sort of abstract, but it is both in terms of the sheer size and rate at which we incarcerate people sort of totally out of alignment with our share of the global population where we count the United States accounts for something like five or 6% of the global population, but we house, I think something like 22 or 23% of the people in prison in the world. Another way of saying that is one out of every four or five people who's locked up in the world is locked up in and by the United States at some scale, by the state or by the feds or by a county. That in and of itself, of course, is a problem, a, a massive problem. Mass incarceration can sometimes, as a term, can sometimes, I think, mystify a little bit of the true scope and scale of the problem. Because in addition to 2.3 million people being in cages, in jails and prisons, we have an additional many million people on probation and parole you have a total of something like 10 or 11 million people cycling through jails every year. You have a number of people, growing numbers of people subject to uh, electronic monitoring or what some scholars now call e-carceration, being sort of incarcerated in your home. It's a big social problem that has taken up greater and greater resources and capacities of this state. So while, and, and while we at EKU were, were a global campus online, EKU, I mean, historically, traditionally also boasts, you know, a regional population of students from, from Kentucky, from nearby states. So could you give us some insight on mass incarceration specifically in, in Kentucky? And, and maybe to tell us a bit about your work and your, your research. Sure, sure. There's a couple of elements to this conversation, certainly about Kentucky and also about the national scope that we should put on the table that maybe would seemingly contradict the so-called sort of common sense about mass incarceration. I think someone just coming into this conversation might assume that if we as the United States or we have, as Kentucky have grown to incarcerate this hugely disproportionate number of people, that sort of choice must reflect some equally disproportionate growth in, say, the crime rate or the number of so-called criminals that reside in the United States. And that would be sort of a, a, a mistaken and, and fairly sort of shallow analysis of the problem. Mass incarceration is really a product of changes to policy and practice in the United States, as well as in Kentucky, over the last, call it, four to five uh, decades. In other words, it's really a project that reflects 
a change in criminalization rather than crime, right? So uh, for example, to be somewhat specific about it, it's a project that has uh, you know, implemented various kinds of changes to sentencing laws, for example, that put more people in prison for longer periods of time over the last three or four decades that has resulted in being in our prison and jail population being so you know, grossly disproportionate uh, to our population. That has also happened in Kentucky. Kentucky, uh, it's, it's a fascinating place. Since the year 2000, Kentucky has actually had one of the fastest growing rates of incarceration in the United States. I think there's about 41,000 people incarcerated in the state of Kentucky, which means it actually has one of the, like I said, one of the fastest growing rates of incarceration in the United States. So Kentucky's rate of incarceration actually outpaces the country's already high rate of incarceration. So I think in Kentucky, our rate of incarceration is something like 850 per 100,000 people, whereas the United States as a whole hovers somewhere around 700 or 750. So Kentucky has gotten particularly punitive and harsh. And crucially, this has occurred and been maintained even in moments of reform. So some listeners might remember at this point, it's actually almost 10 years ago, in 2011, the state passed sentencing reform designed explicitly to reduce the scope of this problem, to try and get some people out of um, state custody, back in, in their communities. And actually what's happened is the, the state prison population has actually grown since passing sentencing reform for a variety of reasons, which we can, which we can get into. So to put it in really sort of stark and blunt terms, if Kentucky were to continue incarcerating its residents at, at the rate at which it does so today, in, I think it's in about 110 years, 113 years, every single one of us who lives in the state will be behind bars. So, so it's, you know, it's, it's a serious problem that I think we tend to talk about for very understandable reasons at the greatest scale, you know, and I mean, I think me and other scholars are, are so-called, you know, guilty of doing this, where we talk about mass incarceration as a national problem and we all or many of us are very familiar with the sort of national scope and the statistics. And that's super important uh, in terms of having some kind of like baseline understanding. That being said, it's not uniform. It looks differently in different places. It shifts over time. Uh, it re sort of forms itself in response to certain pressures and things like that. And so it also seems important to, to ask the kinds of questions you just asked, like what does it look like in Kentucky? and to think about it in different regions as well. So part of what I've done since arriving at EK, or soon after arriving at EKU, is begun to look at what does incarceration look like in central Appalachia and in particular in Eastern Kentucky. It's a place that has seen a lot of prison and jail growth and expansion over the same period as mass incarceration. I came to EKU knowing about that much about it. Like there's some famous demography studies that highlight those regions in the United States that have seen the greatest amount of new prisons built during this period of mass incarceration to house this growing body of people who are incarcerated. And I knew that central Appalachia was one of those regions, but that was about the extent of my knowledge coming into it. And for the past eight years or so, I've spent a fair amount of time in a lot of the communities, home to prisons and you know, reading lots of histories and archives and things like that to, to try and sort of better understand 
why this has happened. Why Central Appalachia? Why now? What sort of work do these prisons and jails uh, sort of perform in the region uh, in order to kind of better understand what's happening? And it's a complex picture. There's a few things I suppose I would, I would say about it in order to give some sense of, 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 what's, of what's happening. Most of the prisons that are in central Appalachia, there's 16 total, 12 of those have been built just in the last few decades. Most of those have been built, not especially through appeals to law and order and harsh kind of criminal justice policy, but rather to the economic needs of the communities in which the prisons would be housed. Understandably, this has occurred kind of in line with the decline and at sometimes the at, at times the precipitous decline of the coal industry, including both coal jobs and coal production. And so in, in many very kind of concrete ways, prisons and jails have been proposed in those communities less because of their connection to crime and punishment, although that's of course important, and more so because of the work that they perform with respect to being able to apply for grants, for infrastructure upgrades, for generating much needed revenue, for, of course, for their ability to tell rural communities that a given politician is trying to bring jobs to those communities in the wake of the decline of coal, even as the research on all of that is pretty dubious. So part of what I've done is to try and understand historically and politically and economically, why Central Appa Appalachia, why prisons and jails there, why now, what does it mean? Considering my understanding of this is, is, is somewhat limited, but hearing what you're saying, it sounds like there is some sort of correlation between this, this term mass incarceration or this practice of incarceration and areas of, of poverty, I guess, at least when we're speaking to Appalachia or, or a downturn in, in coal jobs and what have you. Can, you. can you speak to that correlation? It's a correlation that intersects that relationship that correlation manifests in so many ways in terms of the relationship between mass incarceration and poverty. Just a few uh, to, to be specific about it. Almost everyone who's in prison and jail is, is poor, right? I mean, that's something that um, I think most people probably understand in some level. Um, almost everyone is poor, right? In jail in particular, about 65%, and I'm talking like, you know, national now, 65% of the people who are in jail are there pre-trial, which means for, the, for most of them, they're there simply because they're, they're too poor to afford bail. So in general, right, criminalization, the practice that lands lots and lots of people in prisons and jails is essentially a, a practice of targeting people who are poor, impoverished communities, urban and increasingly rural, which is something that also needs to be said. Some of, the, um, some of the ways that the mass incarceration, or another term we use is the carceral state, some of the ways in which it has changed somewhat recently over the last decade or so is a increasing prevalence of people from rural communities showing up in both jails and in state uh, prisons. With respect to central Appalachia, and in particular to the kind of the practices of prison and jail proliferation there. I think it's very safe to say that prisons and jails in, in many respects are the state's approach to kind of navigating various elements of capitalist crisis. Another way of saying that is it's, it's the state's approach to managing and dealing with poverty. I'll, I'll be specific about it in a couple of ways. 
without getting too technical. So coal has declined super rapidly in the area. I think Eastern Kentucky lost something like 75% of its coal jobs over the last 10 years. At the same time that there's been this dramatic decline of employment, coal production has also declined, right? That's important because Kentucky, like all the coal states, relies on something called the coal severance tax. It's a tax that's adjusted to production levels. So uh, there's like a 4.5% tax on the amount of coal produced uh, in a given uh, county. That money goes to the state, comes back to the state, which then distributes it to the counties, okay? So as coal production declines, the receipts from this tax structure also decline. That's been disastrous for Eastern Kentucky communities that have long been completely reliant on the coal severance tax. So in just the span of a year or a couple of years, we're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars that they've lost and on which they've been completely reliant for kind of like basic municipal you know, needs that revenue, um, that revenue supplies. So one, one kind of practice that counties have turned to in Eastern, in Kentucky generally and in Eastern Kentucky specifically is because we have such a bloated state prison system, there's 24,000 people in under the jurisdiction of the Kentucky Department of Corrections, okay, 24,000, but 12,000 prison beds. So the state has turned to counties to manage and house state prisoners and pays them per diem rates to house them. Because of this, counties have started expanding and even building new jails precisely to attract and house overflow state prisoners from the Kentucky DOC. In this way, these counties are attempting to recuperate some amount of the money they had lost by the decline of the coal severance tax. It's a form of revenue generation. There's other ways also that this relationship manifests. Just one quick one that comes to mind with respect to the prisons. First of all, is the prisons are, are always sort of marketed to rural communities through their appeal towards, you know, middle class uh, salaries and, and benefits. In addition, many of these counties can't afford kind of like basic infrastructure maintenance and upgrades. One way they're able to access, apply for and access grant monies from various funds, federal funds, is through attaching their application to some kind of so-called economic development project for which the prison for which the prison can serve. So if a county can say, hey, we've got this, and the most recent scenario is in Letcher County in Southeastern Kentucky, the county can say, hey, the feds wanna build United States Penitentiary Letcher here in the county. We need money to be able to extend water lines to this more remote part of the county where the prison is gonna be. In other places, it, uh, that same kind of practice enabled the ability to update um, wastewater treatment plants and things like that. So it's these very kind of like basic, almost like mundane practices um, that uh, if you sort of drill down, to use a metaphor I don't, I don't love, um, you, you find all of these sort of interesting relationships that are kind of cemented through poverty, but that connect kind of like, you know, state businesses and or, or the state business of running municipalities and things like that to prison building.
So while there, there is a, a need for establishing this infrastructure in many cases, and I don't want to, I don't want to dilute it too much, but in many cases, it's, it's a business decision to, to, to build these facilities. Yeah. I mean, these are very understandable, very real, very crucial problems. Mm -hmm. Full stop. Right. I mean, right. the decline of coal, uh, both in terms of jobs and and uh, production and the revenue that's attached to it. And of course, the wages that come attached to jobs is very, very real. And so those counties and the, the you know, the people who are uh, in charge of trying to generate revenue, trying to pay people for work, et cetera, are in an unenviable and and in some cases sort of desperate position. And so in one sense, their turn towards jails and prisons has a logic to it, makes some sense. The data doesn't really support it, right? I mean, I should say that too, that the, the, data, the data behind the notion that prisons bring jobs to rural counties is so dubious, actually, that the Bureau of Prisons itself had to admit in this sort of most recent iteration of prison building in Letcher County that I just mentioned, the Bureau of Prisons had to admit that there was no standing for their original claim that they would bring 350 new jobs to the county. So on the one hand, it's understandable. On the other hand, it's not a particularly supported, well-supported strategy <laughs> uh, for, for doing what needs to be done in those counties, which is of course, real meaningful investment that uh, by the state that, that brings relief and jobs and all kinds of support that those counties, uh, of course, deserve. What's the common denominator there as far as the persistence of that, right? So as opposed to with these, all of these communities that, have, and, and, and maybe this is a question for us, or maybe this is a question for somebody else, but with, with these areas specifically in Eastern Kentucky that have been ravaged by this decline in the reliance on coal and the, and the production of coal and, and the return on investment of that, what do you think the common denominator there is for the persistence of these infrastructures going into play as opposed to say something else putting that money somewhere else to create jobs in a different way i mean that's a that's in some ways that's the crucial question right like why prisons why jails why not something else and people in eastern kentucky themselves are asking that question right i mean plenty of the people i spoke to were like you know, in Letcher County, again, for, for example, you know, the prison was something that officially was talked about since 2004, 2005, and it just was defeated last year. So that's almost 15 years of a, a sort of singular economic approach to the county that has no evidence to back it up as a strategy, and which, as we've been talking about, is sort of would be built on the backs of, of other people who are poor, and particularly the racialized poor. So why that? Why not something else? Part of what's happened, I think, is part of how we have to understand mass incarceration is the reorganization of the state itself, right? So over the last 30 or 40 years, more like 40 or 50, as the United States and its 50 states and various, you know, many counties within those states has put increasingly more and more people in prison and jail, they have also divested and defunded from all kinds of other areas, what we generally call, you know, social welfare provision or the social wage or whatever. And so to a large extent, it's been pr prisons and jails have been what's on offer. That's where the state has reorganized its capacity. 
And so for rural communities that have been deindustrialized and seen a loss of, in our case, in Eastern Kentucky, coal jobs, but in plenty of other communities, farms, uh, factories, other kinds of, you know, um, other kinds of, uh, of sort of industrialized workplaces, um, there hasn't particularly been a strategy to replace those other than by replacing them with what we might think of as like a carceral economy or a prison economy. And that's true in upstate New York. It's true in the Central Valley in California. It's true in the Mississippi Delta. It's true in rural Georgia. It's true in Central Appalachia. It's true in, in lots of places. Uh, a strange self-fulfilling prophecy almost, it sounds like, right? This is like this natural response that has a strange ripple effect um, to the populace that surrounds it. That's right. And it becomes, well, yeah, just two quick points there. One is it becomes really hard to think outside the box, so to speak, um, to imagine something else that might fill the footprint, let's say, left by the decline of coal um, or something else that might sit on a mountaintop removal site besides a prison. Um, but it also, and, and this to me is an um, impactful way to think about it, is it not only can like remake the landscape in those places, right? Moving from coal to prison, literally putting prisons on top of old coal mines, but it really can remake and reconfigure the population, right? Kentucky right now has something like 6,600 coal jobs left. And it has something like 6,650 correctional officer jobs. So, there's been this complete exchange uh, whereby now we have more prison and jail guards in the state than we do people who work in coal. And so you can begin to see the possibility of a new sort of political and even cultural alignment around incarceration uh, in Eastern Kentucky and Central Appalachia more broadly that replaces or adds on to or slightly reconfigures what had been, of course, an alignment and identity around a, a variety of things, but certainly, of course, coal as well. And to me, that's, yeah, that's just a, a dramatic change that I think we have to sort of reckon with, like what happens when, when not just communities, but communities and a region become organized around the managing of cages to be sort of blunt about it, but the managing of jails and prisons and the people who are incarcerated within them. Let, so let, let's zoom out a bit. I think it's safe to say that we're certainly experiencing a moment in history here. And, and I think you and I have, have talked about this, but almost with, with dual crises, right? I mean, we're dealing with a global pandemic, coronavirus, which is ravaging prison populations. But then on, on the flip side of this token, we're also seeing, you know, mass protests against police violence. As a scholar, what are your thoughts, uh, what are your observations on what's going on here, how these things are connected? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they're deeply, uh, they're connected to each other, um, and they're deeply connected to what we've been talking about. The crisis of the coronavirus uh, in prisons and jails is the most brutal illustration of this reorganization of capacities that we were just talking about. You don't have, I think as today's July 30th or 31st, right? Like you don't have 78 or 79,000 people in prisons and jails 
uh, diagnosed with the coronavirus today if you don't have this massive investment in putting people inside prisons and jails to begin with, right? And not just the, the uh, investment in doing that, but the investment in keeping them there, right? I mean, the fact that there were sort of assigning people to, to get sick and to the probability of, of very early deaths because they happen to be locked up uh, and that we haven't grappled with, reckoned with, accepted the very need to get them out is, I think, an illustration both of our investment over time in these places and our more sort of ideological or mental investment that those places are somehow like necessary for the rest of us to live our lives. These are people just like the rest of us who happen to get incarcerated, some for very minimal things that the rest of us are just as guilty of doing, some for things that that are serious, but which, by the way, some of us are also guilty of doing and just not getting caught, but but whose lives are just as sacred as the rest of ours, and yet we are condemning them to being sick and infecting each other and the people who work there, by the way, and, and not getting them out. So it is a massive, massive crisis. The moment we're in in terms of the uprising again, uprisings against police violence in every U.S. state and in a couple dozen countries is also a moment of crisis and also a moment of sort of historic proportions. I read last week that when all is said and done, it may constitute the largest mobilizations, the largest mass movement in U.S. history, just in terms of the sheer number of people who are in some way, shape, or form out in the streets. Um, And the fact that this is happening during the pandemic is, I think, itself indicative of how severe of a crisis this is. One thing that I think is worth mentioning as someone who's, you know, studied this in some shape or form for a little while is to me the language that's being used right now, the tenor of the protests and the sort of framework that people are deploying is the other thing besides the scale and scope that that distinguishes it from past movements. I think in the past, including in sort of the more earlier iterations of, of Black Lives Matter, a lot of the calls for reform understandably focused on various sort of procedural or technical changes to the way policing is done, right? So greater transparency, greater accountability, body cameras, civilian, civilian review boards, things like that. And that's still very much there and, and you know, worth discussion. But part of what we're seeing, I think anyone who's paid attention to what's happening recently in the last few months part, will have noticed that um, to a large extent, one of the kind of dominant frames of the protest is a call to defund the police. And that to me is new and distinctive and worth thinking about. I think the initial reaction some people have to that is probably one of fear or revulsion or misunderstanding. What I would suggest to folks who may be listening and, or, and, have, and um, have experienced that sort of reaction is think a little bit historically, including some of what we've talked about over the last 30 minutes or so, and it's that, and the fact that we've actually defunded all kinds of things in the United States for the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, we defunded and have defunded education, higher education, public health, mental health services, public housing, food provision, right? We have defunded all kinds of elements of the state at every scale and to a large extent, 
channeled all of that funding into the police and to prisons and jails as well. And so in some respects, the call to defund the police is a call to acknowledge that they have been dramatically overfunded, quite literally at the expense of all of these other areas of our lives. And the call to defund the police is a, is a recognition of that and a, and a call to significantly dial it back in order to reorient and reorganize and reform the state's capacities into those other functions, which also have to be said, uh, it should also be said that those other functions most, most people, including most experts, acknowledge those other functions are actually what address the problems for which the police have become the sort of putative solutions, right? The problems of, say, homelessness or mental illness or joblessness or poverty. So that's, that's broadly, I think, that's sort of where my head is at the moment. I guess I would say one other thing about the call to defund. The call to defund also has to be understood, I think, within the longer history of the police, right? So we've been talking mostly about the changes to the carceral state or the state itself over the last 40 years or so, and I think that's really important. But the call to defund also comes out of a much longer history of the police, which acknowledges that for hundreds of years, really, um, the police have been used in various different ways in different regions of the country, for you know different purposes but all towards the management of poverty um, and and often um, toward the sort of protection of markets power elites etc and so the call to defund the police is not a new call that's a call that comes out of a lot of work over decades by activists many of whom themselves activists and scholars i should say many of whom themselves also have been witnesses to or victims of survivors of all kinds of violence, violence at the hands of the police, but also forms of interpersonal violence, and who have come to recognize that defunding the police is, is not just about sort of moving capacities and monies elsewhere, but it's also about trying to move towards a world where the police and the prisons and jails that are deeply connected to them perhaps become somewhat obsolete, that maybe we can think about moving capacities elsewhere to address the problems that the police and, the, and prisons and jails supposedly resolve, but which most of the time they exacerbate. And defunding is, in that regard, defunding is sort of understood as a step in, the, in that direction of what people call abolition. We talk with a lot of people who deal with this very stark reality on a day-to-day -day basis and understand it very intimately and have studied it very extensively. Um, you looking at mass incarceration and we'll just call them systemic issues that contribute to that and, and then take into account the, the just the current topical issues of, of the pandemic and um, you know the, these, these, these protests. I think it's easy for people who really see the stark realities of these things. An easy place to go is to get jaded by this and to you know, take a cynical approach. As an educator, as, as a father, as a husband, as someone who you know, is an expert in these areas and, and as someone who people who don't know as much about this, um, these issues, as someone who these people come to and say, what do I do with this? 
information? How do I, you know, this is so overwhelming on so many levels. How do I, how am I not paralyzed by bandwidth overload here? What, what, how do I respond to this? What, what do you say to those people? That's such a great question. It is so overwhelming <laughs> um, and, and deeply difficult to think about. It's also, these, I find these issues in particular are, yeah, they're just, they're, they're difficult to talk about. They understandably um, elicit really strong responses. I think they also are deeply mystified in the way that we talk about things as Americans. And so we sort of have these ideas about police or people who are in jails and prisons um, or about prisons and jails themselves that are informed by perhaps by some of our own anecdotal experiences by having members of our family who work in those places or certainly by media portrayals of those institutions and people who work there, but which are often, our understanding of those things are often deeply ahistorical and also removed from sort of facts on the ground. Just to give you one quick example before I address the specifics of your question. One is I think people often have a very, often misunderstand you know, what it is that police actually do uh, the New York Times just last month had this great piece on, it's something sort of very, very basic and very descriptive, like what do the police actually do or something like that. And it turns out, you know, the police spend about 4% of their time on violent crime, uh, another maybe 15% on other kinds of sort of nonviolent property crimes and things like that. That's 19% of their time, right? And so the vast majority of their time is spent responding to non-criminal calls and complaints and directing traffic and things like that. So one way, I'm using that to make two points. One point is, as we think about something like a call like to defund the police or an alternative to the police, it's incumbent upon us to actually understand what it is the police actually do and why they do it, and where they're located, et cetera. And to think about, well, are there things that we ask the police to do that may be better suited for other elements of a given community or society? The second point though, I would use that to make a second point towards your question, which is, and I think this is very easy to say, but I think part of what's incumbent upon us is also to, to educate ourselves, to understand what it is that's happening in the world, sort of beyond headlines and beyond the way that it might be portrayed on a given, you know, five o'clock news show. That can look like a lot, I mean, that could look like, you know, reading and studying and things like that, which of course I, I'm a professor, like of course I'm gonna say like do that. But I think another really concrete way to educate oneself is to look at your community's or city uh, budget. Look at your city budget and find out where, because budgets are indexes of where, what a given city cares about, right? What they support. Uh, you and I both live in Lexington and Lexington's uh, proposed budget for this coming year during these dual crises that you led with allocates cuts, literally cuts like almost every nonprofit and social service, sometimes by more than $100,000, which for a very small nonprofit that does, you know, crucial work, feeding the hungry, housing the houseless, et cetera, is devastating, makes those cuts and gives three and a half million dollars to the police, which already take up 28% of the city's budget. Right, and public safety amounts for 50, amounts for 50%. So to make that, to move that into answering your question, one thing people can do is to understand what's actually happening in your city and community. One way to do that is to read, to look at your city budget, et cetera. Another thing is of course, there's lots of organizations in, in many communities doing this kind of work. And it, it's simply to sort of plug in 
bodies are needed. <laughs> and that could be protesting if that's something that, that people are interested in and, and up for, particularly in this moment, but it doesn't have to be, right? There's all kinds of things that are needed for, for change to occur. And before someone starts trying to sort of reinvent the wheel or invent some new project or whatever, I would suggest people, you know, get a sense of what's happening in their respective communities. As we've been talking about, it's easy to think about mass incarceration as a national problem, which of course it is. But the national problem of mass incarceration wouldn't be that without its manifestations at the level of each individual state and at the level of our communities, right? Our small communities, our small and rural communities, our mid-sized cities and our big cities. So if people are wanting to be activated around these issues, I think getting active in very kind of concrete ways in respective communities is one way to make, to try to have some sort of impact and is desperately needed. Yeah, it's a great, great answer. In, in your experience, is, is that change happening? Uh, is that change plausible? Is that change possible? Do you see that change coming? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, I'll pause and walk that back a little bit. I mean, it's coming if we make it happen, right? I mean, it's, it's on us. It's on the people who are, who are doing this work. Um, I'd point to a few things. I mean, what's happened over the last 40 years of our massive investment in these infrastructures of captivity, if you want to call them that, was by no means inevitable. It didn't have to be this way, right? I mean, various forces coalesced and struggled, and, and this was the outcome. It can end as soon as we sort of leverage our work against it. And I think there's a lot of different ways, at, again, at speaking at different scales that this can be done. You saw in places like Minneapolis, Philadelphia, I believe San Francisco, various victories by community organizations to defund, sometimes dramatically defund, their police departments and reallocate that money to all other elements of their city and various organizations that work on all of the issues we've been talking about, but also do a fair amount. But some of those organizations also work around, do anti-violence work in communities and work on conflict resolution. So to me, that points to a lot of steps people could, could take, some of which we've already sort of spoken about in terms of organizing around police violence and the possibilities of, of uh, the possibilities enabled by the idea of defunding police and moving that money and capacity into other areas. To me, that kind of thinking should probably be extended to our jails and prisons as well. What happens if we don't put as much money into these spaces that make often difficult lives much more difficult and think about what might actually, where we might actually put that energy and money and capacity that might actually assist our communities and, and make them healthier in various ways. That to me is, a, is an alternative to incarceration, right? I think it's important to pivot here and, and speak for a moment about the more kind of common sense deployment of the term alternative to incarceration, and then maybe I'll swing back briefly. That's another area that I think we have to invest in is when someone is arrested, let's say, or perhaps before they're arrested, but some harm has been committed. 
where, what are the examples, what are the organizations that are doing the work to imagine responding to that harm differently than just the practice that we've relied on for so long, which is arrest, isolation of the so-called offender, targeting them, incarcerating them, et cetera. Are there ways to uh, address that harm, hold somebody's behavior accountable that don't necessarily rely on systems of punishment, but bring the change that we hope happens to the situation and that are more kind of meaningful in terms of the meaningful uh, in terms of the restoration of the harm for the victim uh, and also for the community in which victim and offender are, are housed. The most obvious examples of this approach, of course, are what's called restorative justice or transformative justice. And if that's if those are new concepts for for listeners and viewers, I would encourage people to to look those up. There's they're complicated and and they can be easily sort of romanticized, but there's also organizations, I would point folks towards organizations in particular in Chicago and New York City that have really invested in those kinds of responses to interpersonal harm. There's organizations that, that really do that important work. So on the one hand, I would say there's those kinds of really like concrete, immediate alternatives to incarceration. I would also then just return briefly back to my initial point, which is to say alternatives to incarceration can mean all kinds of things outside of the sort of crime punishment or non-punishment circuit, right? An alternative to incarceration is not spending more money on a new jail, but rather giving teachers, hiring more teachers and hiring more counselors for those schools and funding rural hospitals and funding a drug treatment center and mental health counselors. That's an alternative to incarceration that I think we should, we should be working toward. Judah's writing can be found in journals such as Radical Criminology, Theoretical Criminology, Punishment and Society, Social Justice, and Crime, Media, and Culture, uh, as well as multiple blogs and opinion pieces for academic and activist websites. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Judah Shep, for taking the time here today to be with us and, and speak to some of these issues. I'd also like to mention uh, Dr. Shep's book, Cages in the Coalfields, which addresses some of the issues we've been talking about here today. That's coming out from New York University Press in 2021. And if you like what you're hearing on this eCast, you can check out some of our other episodes featuring uh, some of our other amazing faculty here at Eastern Kentucky University at ekuonline.eku.edu and look for eCast. Dr. Shep, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Sam. Really great to be with you. And we'll, we'll see you around the block. See you around the block. Absolutely. <laughs>